Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining this special edition episode of the What's Up With podcast. My name is Marcy Roth, and I am WID's Executive Director and CEO. I'm happy to serve as your host today as I chat with the wonderful Sherry Fink. Sherry is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Emmy-nominated television producer, and the author of the New York Times best-selling nonfiction book, Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. This book is about choices made in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Sherry is a producer of the Five Days at Memorial limited series on Apple TV Plus as well. Today, Sherry and I will be discussing a whole host of topics, um, but I'm, I'm first going to start with um, just uh, a little bit of uh, being a fangirl. So um, I've followed Sherry's writing um, from her ProPublica uh, Pro days, from uh, all sorts of writing that she uh, has done in her time with the New York Times, and then, uh, you know, certainly uh, with my own experiences with Hurricane Katrina and the work that I've done um, in the intersections of uh, disability uh, rights, uh, justice, and disaster, um, you know, Sherry's uh, very deep awareness of uh, some of the issues that we grapple with uh, really attracted me uh, to her even more. And um, so uh, I got real brave one time and reached out and um, thought, well, I'll never hear back from her. And I heard back in about two minutes. So uh, we've had just, um, I, I think, delightful conversations back and forth for a long time now. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to uh, have the opportunity to uh, um, ply Sherry with questions. So, <laughs> and more importantly, listen to your answers. So um, let me introduce Sherry Fink, um, an amazing human and a fabulous, fabulous writer. Oh, thank you, Marcy. And it, it's, it's, um, it's wonderful to be in conversation with you. It's wonderful to have been in conversation with you over these years. And also just to, um, you know, the work that you do is, is um, you're always at the center of issues that, or every disaster that comes up, you're at the center of work and issues that are, um, you know, very important and very often not, um, front and center as as uh, as one might expect that they would be because they're so central to the issues of emergency response and preparedness and resilience. So I'm very glad um, to have learned from you over the years and delighted to be here today. Well, thank you very much. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the things I'd love to talk about. But first, if you would um, just tell everybody how did, how did your journey um, bring you to where you're at right now? Well, I have a, an unconventional background for a 
journalist because I actually went to medical school and mm -hmm. also did a PhD in basic science. So I have a medical background. And then I got very interested in some of the, the humanitarian crises that were happening around the time that I was a student and a genocide going on in the Balkans, uh, in, in the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, and ended up connecting in the very early days of email back then with some um, peers in a way, medical students in the Balkans who were essentially becoming war doctors and um, realized that there was a lot to learn from from them and their experiences and ended up going off for what I thought was a year between med school and residency to work in the Balkans. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, wars broke out, I ended up doing um, humanitarian aid work myself, and then um, getting very passionate about writing about some of these issues of medicine in crisis, medicine in extreme situations, which I could see in some way was an, a kind of a magnification of a lot of the issues that are with everyday medicine that affect um, medical providers and patients and the people who love those patients all the time, but are, you know, um, magnified in a way in these crises. So we see them more and maybe we have a, a chance to pay attention to them and and um, do something about them. So I, I think that's kind of what led me to, to where I am today. That was the, the key turning point. That, um, it, the, those of us who sort of get that um, uh, pull to do humanitarian work, um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I know some of our listeners are, are going to laugh because they know exactly how someone can sort of, you know, take a giant leap into humanitarian action and then, you know, you're, you're never the same again. Um, so how, how did you come to be um, so focused on Memorial and uh, the circumstances for people in New Orleans during Katrina? So after years of doing emergency response work overseas in these, you know, what were at that time called complex humanitarian emergencies, you know, they had aspects of of natural disasters sometimes, but a lot of human uh, actions were influencing, you know, the toll of those of those emergencies. So, so after having responded to conflict situations and disaster situations in many different countries, I, you know, Katrina hit Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S. in 2005, and I think I was really naive. I think a lot of people were in the U.S in just assuming that, you know, oh, we'll, we'll do better. We, we are so blessed to have so many resources in terms of, you know, monetary resources or, you know, um, just materials or, and also the wonderful human beings who populate our uh, health systems and emergency response systems. So yeah, just that assumption was there and, and seeing the um, utter, you know, failures of the infrastructure, the, the immense suffering and death toll that 
that resulted, it was very uh, striking and jarring and upsetting and, you know, deeply, um, it just um, problematic. And, and so I actually volunteered after Katrina with a public health team that was working in shelters where people who were displaced from their homes, they were in these huge often, you know, stadiums all over Louisiana. Um, and I was, uh, we were documenting the, the health needs at these shelters where lots of people were displaced from New Orleans after the levees failed and the city flooded. And this story, this particular story of Memorial Hospital, which was one of many hospitals that were surrounded by floodwaters uh, where they, the people inside were waiting days and days for rescue, power failed, backup power failed. Um, the situation was on the news. It was one of many stories after Katrina that, that stood and represented larger problems with our response, our preparedness, our mitigation measures. And, um, but what was so striking about this particular case was that very early on there were accusations that some health professionals had intentionally hastened the deaths of their patients. And I thought it really caught my notice, but it, it was a big, big story at the time. A lot of people forget it was just a big news story um, because people who worked at that hospital immediately reported that they they disagreed with, with what some of their colleagues had done. And I had just written a book about a Bosnian war hospital that was under siege for three years, no power, you know, bombs going, you know, raining down, having to do war surgery with no anesthesia. And I had spent years working on that book and interviewed the survivors from that town. And I'd never heard of this coming up. Like I'd heard of, you know, like in fiction or in movies where you see, you know, like, difficult decisions, end of life in a crisis, but in this war zone for three years where they didn't have power, they didn't get desperate enough to have even talked about ending the lives of patients. So it just, it felt like whatever had happened and there were different accounts at that time or just a lot of like people saying this couldn't have happened. Um, Whatever had led people at that hospital to believe that something like this happened felt worth looking into. How had things gotten so desperate that this was even discussed, let alone, you know, did it occur and, and why? And so I, I started looking into it. And then the people at the center of the accusations for obvious reasons were being told by their lawyers that they couldn't talk at that time. And so I really started to interview more and more people and realized that it it wasn't just a story about the people who were being accused and said they were innocent, but um, but a much larger story that involved the aspects that you um, you referred to in the beginning that intersected with issues of disability and bias and equity and um, many, many other important issues that are with us all the time in this country. It, and, you know, it's, it's um, interesting to hear you pointing out that um, you were surprised by um, the failures 
uh, here in the U.S. compared to your uh, uh, recent experiences and, and many experiences in um, you know, disaster relief work in other parts of the world. Um, and I know, you know, to this day, 17 years later, people often refer to what happened during Hurricane Katrina as a, you know, particularly significant milestone and uh, perhaps a, a pivotal period. So do you see things have changed? Have, how, how much are you watching? How much are you, um, how, how much is uh, humanitarian action still front and center for you? And, and what are you seeing? So I, I, I've been deeply immersed in um, continuing to follow this topic of, um, you know, whatever words we want to put on it, but basically medicine in crisis or crises that affect healthcare. And of course that includes COVID and I'm, I'm writing a book about COVID right now. And, you know, the common link here, and, and you mentioned that surprise that I had, it, it's in some ways very analogous to the fact that the U.S. was rated number one in preparedness or the top level of preparedness for pandemics by an international body that had been created shortly before um, before this pandemic happened. And, you know, we, in terms of the, the deaths and the, the you know, and so many levels and metrics, we, we've obviously done, um, you, you know, very poorly compared with many other countries. Um, and I think it is that we have focused too much in, in this, it, or maybe one of the issues here is that there's so much focus on our technological tools in this country because we're blessed again, I keep using that word blessed, we're lucky, we're fortunate to have, mm -hmm. Um, you know, a, a lot of money in this country compared to other countries and a lot of advanced technology in our health system. But in, in some ways, it can make us more vulnerable in a crisis. And so whereas this, you know, town in Bosnia, which was a, this particular town that I wrote about that was surrounded by, you know, enemy forces and under siege for three years, but the people there had, um, they were a little more resourceful. Like they were able to recharge car batteries on, you know, the river that ran through town. And they did all sorts of hacks to kind of keep going at that time. And um, I'm not going to say it was easy or that people didn't become extremely desperate, but it, it's, it kind of occurred to me that in some ways, in some aspects, we have... Um, we, we will be more vulnerable if we lose that sense of can do or um, the ability to improvise and, you know, and not just feel like if we don't have those tools that we rely on, that suddenly we, we can't do anything. And I think, so that's the danger of relying. And, and this is not just in medicine, but just think of, you know, when you, when you don't charge your cell phone and your smartphone and you suddenly don't have, you know, the map that helps you navigate a new place or we're all getting very dependent on these things that run on power. So, um, 
and 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 then we haven't focused enough on maybe the human resources and the people and investing in them and and ensuring that they have what they need to be able to do the job and we saw this so much you know during covid where there were and and remain huge pressures on the health workforce and um just a lot of issues a lot of our issues in the covid response particularly during the the surges had to put a huge amount of pressure on um you know on on the health workforce so um so that's the i guess the negative side or the side that we we see that there are still huge issues in our ability to be resilient in um medicine and healthcare when there is anything from you know a hurricane to a pandemic and anything in between i would say on the positive side there I do believe, and I'm curious if you agree with this because you've been in this game a long time. Um, I think there's more awareness that that preparedness and response are top priorities and that Hmm. there needs to be attention to them. And certainly some, there were some positive developments after Katrina, such as, and I'm sure you remember the years of battle to that, that officials went through to pass this minimum standards of preparedness for healthcare providers in the US in order to, as one of the conditions of participation in Medicare and Medicaid, which is obviously a big source of, of reimbursements for health providers. So now after, I think it took a dozen years after Katrina, after a realization of all the many ways that health providers were vulnerable, there was you know, then a rule that required just some very minimal, you know, like uh, having plans and doing an exercise and having some more robust backup power systems. But, you know, we we frequently, the focus goes to the next important thing. And this is a human, it seems to be a human response to just move right on, not want to look back and all of the outrage and all of the momentum for change and for investment a lot of times really goes away. And so I think the big question now with regards to all that we've learned of our vulnerabilities with COVID is, is what will change and, and will anything change and how much will change? So we do see, we see some areas of the country being, um, and again, I'd, I'd be interested because you're at the center of a lot of responses to coastal storms, et cetera, and, and you know, like very interested to look at Hurricane Ian in Florida and some early suggestions that there may have been some improvements in the preparedness to weather that that affected patients and healthcare institutions. So much to to unpack here. Um, so let me begin um, by uh, saying that um, I think that the um, uh, the resilience focus, the preparedness focus, has um, it, 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 it's been a particular challenge because everybody still has this sort of medical model mindset that people with disabilities need to be planned for rather than, we are 
among the most resilient were master problem solvers. And um, so, you know, to your fabulous example, um, you know, we have to we have to go to plan B and C and D all the time. So we're actually much better at planning for, you know, what could go wrong because stuff goes wrong all the time. And yet our preparedness and our community resilience efforts um, continue to um, be uh, unwelcomed or only marginally welcomed uh, in our local communities. It's a, um, it, it, it's a real head scratcher. And then, um, you know, I, I love that you brought up the, the healthcare provider emergency preparedness rule, um, which was, as you said, you know, many, many years in the making. Because and there was then, so much pushback from industry, it should be said, about an unfunded yes. mandate. Yeah. Yes, yes. So much pushback. And so much water and down then, from the original yeah. plans. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So much watering down. And then even after the rule was published and they there was a year to launch it, um, then uh, there was an effort to dismantle the rule. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, you know, to point out one of the disconnects, this particular rule, super important, but it, the only consequences might be after the fact, if you are seeking Medicaid, Medicare reimbursement, um, and you have not met the requirements of the rule, you may not get reimbursed for the work that you've done. So um, that means taking funds away from healthcare providers after they've already done the work, um, which as you can imagine is not really a popular thing to do. Mm. Um, and, and yet they're not given the resources to do the planning and as you said you know focusing on exercises focusing on communications focusing on um you know having the uh, uh, uh tools in place to deal with power outages and such um so you know so there's a um the punishment will be we won't pay you back as opposed to here, let's help you to make sure that all of these things are in place. Mm. Um, and so, you know, so then uh, thinking about COVID, and I'm really interested to hear, you know, uh, you and I have talked a little bit about the horrors of the um, extreme impact of COVID on uh, people with disabilities of all ages and uh, people in congregate facilities who, you know, just in nursing homes, and we're not counting group homes, we're not counting um, uh, carceral facilities, we're not counting psychiatric hospitals, just, you know, the sort of traditional nursing homes. 
you know, it's estimated that about 200,000 people died from COVID. Most of them, um, according to the um, American Community Survey of Nursing Home Residency uh, uh, Statistics, 96, uh, almost 97% of people in those um, long-term care facilities are people with disabilities. So, um, you know, in, in, the, in the disability community, as we call it, you know, people who, who um, uh, focus on uh, disability rights and the, the you know, the, the need for um, equity and justice to, to, to center the most disproportionately impacted, multiply marginalized people, you know. Um, it, it's, it's commonly, um, we, we are well aware that um, everybody else has sort of talked about uh, the elderly, the uh, people with comorbidities, underlying conditions, um, people who are fragile, people who are frail, you know, all those, um, uh, you know, uh, euphemisms for disability, which disability comes with some, you know, civil rights obligations. And yet, as you know, you talked about the horrific genocide um, that you experienced, many people in the disability community are calling the death of disabled people uh, in COVID uh, a, a genocide. So uh, I'm, I'm really interested to sort of hear your reaction to some of the things that I just said. And then how, how can we um, get more focus on the sort of, you know, the medical perspective, the industry, the, I, I call it the humanitarian industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. How can we sort of move all of that and move government to shift that uh, paradigm so that the people most disproportionately experiencing the pain are the people who are the closest to the power? So I'll stop there. Uh, now I've given you a bunch to unpack. Yeah, thank you for all of that. And that point you made at the beginning of of your these comments about the the adaptability, the the resilience, the the innovation, the creativity of people who live with disabilities, um, and that being an asset to planners who work on emergency response, like that that should be seen as an asset, and that the individuals who who have the who have a lot of experience with adaptations um you know like in other words it's not just oh let's include them because that's the right thing to do that people who are being planned for should be part of the planning but it's also like hey it might actually help everybody even yes. more i mean it's just such an important um point that you made and the other thing I want to reflect back on is just getting to what's changed and what hasn't. Absolutely, the disproportionate impact of 
these varying emergencies on people with disabilities and a sense of, I, I would say like to me as somebody observing and witnessing, bearing witness and trying to record like it, to me there's a, a feeling that is sort of obvious. If the same groups of people are the ones dying disproportionately in these crises, like what does that say about how society is valuing these groups of people? And um, I mean, it just feels, um, it just feels outrageous to see it happen over and over and over again. It doesn't feel like, yeah, it feels like there's, that has to be looked at and amplified and, and, and maybe there is, um, it's so ingrained, these biases are so ingrained that they're not even seen by people who are temporary, temporarily able. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, um, we, I talked, you know, about the, the horrific loss of life in these congregate settings. And, you know, I mean, number one, it says a whole lot about you know, because we we collectively presume that the people in nursing homes are old, and uh, you know, certainly you've told the story, and um, and then the series has you know given us real visuals of the the fact that you know people are considered expendable, disposable. Um, left out, left back, left behind. And, um, you know, and at the same time, you know, in, uh, in your telling the story, I mean, you were mostly talking about people with disabilities. And, um, you know, when, when I talk about 96% of people in nursing homes being people with disabilities, well, you don't go to a nursing home because you're old. You go to a nursing home because you need support and your community has failed to put that support in place. And so you have no choice. Um, you know, almost, I, you know, I, I, I have never heard somebody say, boy, I can't wait until I can go to a nursing home. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, right. So, so I guess my, one of my real questions is, um, how how do we convince the storytellers to tell this part of that story? Hmm. Um, I mean, I I guess I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I feel like you're okay. in activism, so you're I. I was a student activist around, you know, certain issues, but then I became a journalist and I stepped back and thought, actually, as like journalism, um, it, it, I felt like truth was its own form of activism, if that makes sense. Like if you tell stories, like the, these are facts, right? It is a fact that these groups of individual, like like that people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted and all of these metrics and some of that, the ones that you just cited, uh, the horrific, just uh, unthinkable, but, but um, 
predictable in some way toll from from the the COVID pandemic, but you can see analogies in other um, recent disasters and certainly Katrina, which we're talking about with the deaths of, of so many people in nursing homes and in um, and in the hospitals and even, you know, in re the recent hurricane that hit, uh, that hit uh, not Florida, but, but New Orleans again last year, a year ago, it was, you know, people in nursing homes and people also just seniors who lived in, um, you know, just housing buildings that weren't prepared. So anyways, I'm, I'm going on and on about that. So, I, I mean, I guess just telling those stories, telling, getting the truth out is important. And, and I guess the activists need to, um, to think about how to interest journalists or to get those stories out through your own because now everybody has platforms with with social and mm -hmm. but but i'm also concerned about just so as a storyteller as a journalist um what what impact does this work have and and just sometimes telling the story and having people empathize with the individuals it is powerful but then what comes of it and you know that's something i i think about as as a storyteller and and maybe we should also tell the audience just a little more about it because they might not be familiar with the the five days at memorial story but Please. just and where that intersects here where that overlaps here is that um when the levees failed and the water started rising around this particular hospital in new orleans and the power was threatening to go out, there were actually two hospitals. There was a, a hospital and then a hospital within a hospital that had most of the people who couldn't ambulate, who were dependent on uh, ventilators for breathing, um, people with you know multiple chronic health conditions where they relied on um, a lot of of care and so it was called a long-term acute care facility it w was providing acute care which hospitals do but for a longer period for people who needed you know long period of rehab or um, had had multiple intersecting medical issues and so one thing that happened early on that was so telling in this in this hospital as as they decided who to prioritize for evacuation first as the power was threatening to go out the long-term acute care hospital patients were not even in the discussion because the main hospital controlled all the facilities they controlled the helipad and when they began to discuss which groups of patients should be prioritized they it's almost like they forgot about this hospital within a hospital that was most people when you think about triaging a resource or who gets access who should be prioritized you know we've talked about in recent years, you know, the COVID vaccines, when they first came out, like which groups should be prioritized? Often you should think about, well, who is it who, who needs that resource and who would, you know, have a bad impact if they didn't have it? And so logically, it would be people who are power dependent, who, whose care relies on power. You would think you might want to prioritize them for rescue before the power fails. And they were completely left out of the discussion. And I remember interviewing, I spent many, many years. First, it was an article, then the book Five Days at Memorial. And then, of course, the, the Apple TV Plus series that just 
um, premiered and, and can be watched now that that dramatized the story that was um, that that visualized it so you can you know meet the individuals see who are based on some of the real people there and but I remember early on as I was interviewing people they were telling me about that there were literally doctors who said you know like I, I can't remember there's a quote in the book the nonfiction book like you know we do do too much for these folks you know and there was an active tension within that hospital about um, you know whether those those individuals should be even entitled to to the care that they were getting and and sure of course there is a valid discussion about you know for-profit health care and and sometimes you know people not having the informed choice about how much care they want and and it, it can sometimes people can make a choice to want or not want certain interventions that is a valid conversation but it, you see and and through the the story as the story unfolded as these days of disaster unfolded some of the biases or the the sense that these individuals you know lives were just i mean literally not um not a priority not as much of a priority to save and and some of the the doctors actually you know we hear i'm sure a lot of of people with disabilities have talked a lot about bias within healthcare and so these were doctors and they're quoted in the book literally saying things like this and and there's a moment i remember interviewing some coast guard auxiliary people who were manning the phones when um different calls were coming in for help and the coast guard was organizing a rescue of the the patients of this hospital within a hospital which had reached out independently trying to secure some rescue resources and mm -hmm. when um, the coast guard was about to send them and began to send the helicopters the main hospital staff sent them away and um that was um for a variety of reasons, but there was um, a statement again by by a staff member of the hospital to the Coast Guard, something to the effect of, you, you know, we don't think these folks will make it anyways, and, and uh, it's not worth taking the risk. It, the helicopters were arriving at night. It was valid to be worried that it was dark and people could be injured, but that, you know, it was stated so flatly that years later when I found these um, officials that they still remembered being shocked by that and I think responding something like you know shouldn't people who have the most vulnerabilities be prioritized first not last and and that's it, well, really one of the, the yeah. questions that this situation yeah. raised and, and you, you you all covered that very so dramatically visually uh, heartbreakingly in the fifth episode um, you know, the, 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 the experience of, you know, people having to weigh these decisions. Um, you know, I, of course, come at this from a longstanding frustration that people with disabilities are, you know, we're considered a liability and not given an opportunity to be an asset. And um, at the same time, uh, you know, there were just heartbreaking 
um, you know, discussions about pets and decisions about pets. And in disasters, we struggle with that uh, often because, you know, not that we're not pet lovers as well. And in fact, um, uh, service animals uh, can, can be the, the dividing line between living in the community and not, not being able to. Um, but, you, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it, which is why it's so important that this story is told. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm curious to know, how did you convince Apple TV plus to do this? Oh, well, it wasn't, um, I don't know that they needed any convincing, but I wasn't the one. <laughs> um, I, they supported this project, you know, to an incredible extent. And you can see that with the quality of the production. I mean, there was like a 9 million liter water tank that was built to actually film a lot of the scenes with real water to not just have to fake that, to, to actually, um, you know, put people in that and just a fantastic crew and cast and very committed storytellers. But the real answer to that question is um, the executive producers who were also the directors and the writers, the main directors and the, the sole writers of the series who are, um, you know, TV, very, very, um, you know, experienced people in the dramatic space and television and movies, um, Carlton Cuse and John Ridley. And they read the book and they, they wanted to make this. They wanted to do the adaptation. And so they're the ones who, who had the conversations with Apple. Um, but I know that, the, you know, they really embraced the, the storytelling in it uh, that yeah. was, that did, that tried to honor the, the real events um, yeah. And, you know, and a lot of these nuances, which is really unusual, I think, in TV where you don't have, you know, a villain and a hero, but you really, really grapple with these decisions. And, and bringing it down to that human level, I think, can help people identify because, yeah, when you talk about these outrageous things that you've discussed and, and the numbers, the pure, like, mind-boggling numbers of people who have died... But sometimes when you bring that down to just a human being, it's so powerful because then we can see like, and then you multiply that in your mind by, by so many more people and we grasp it, I think yeah. on a different level. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, yeah, as I posed that question to you, how did you get Apple TV plus to do this? And you were like, oh no, 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 that's not how it went. And, but but you know, looking back on the on the question that I had asked earlier, so that's the mindset that we find ourselves in as disability. Uh, uh, as oh, right! Like you have to convince right? to tell a worthy, a worthwhile right. story. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah. and and so as you were sitting here and thinking, do I have to write a book? Do I have to? <laughs> What do I need to do? What is, you know, what, what does the World Institute on Disability and our partners, what do we need to do 
to get people to notice these stories, right? So just in that exchange, um, that was a real, uh, that was a, an aha moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I like that we can process that. So talk about Emmett, please. Yes, I will. And, and the actor who, who played him, Damon Standifer, is, it was just fantastic. Um, so, so Emmett Everett was one of the patients in this long-term acute care unit at this hospital called Life Care. And he was, um, he had had a spinal cord stroke, so that left him not able to walk. And he was also morbidly obese and had a number of health issues. Um, so that's just a background on sort of his condition, you know, physically. Um, he was on the seventh floor of this hospital. He was not in the initial round of prioritization because none of the patients on that floor were. And so when the backup power failed and the elevators didn't work anymore, um, he was in a position of, you know, it, it was going to be difficult to move down to the staging areas from which patients were then moved to the helipad or to the boat area. And I, you know, it, it's sort of stunning when you think about it, when you step back and think about the fact that a hospital wouldn't have a way to move a patient who can't walk downstairs in- Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> in an emergency because, right, it doesn't take a, a Hurricane Katrina, a, you know, like a, a, a very, very notable um, and in some ways extreme example of a disaster in this country. But as we all know, the power fails for many reasons. And I'm sure many listeners have thought about this issue and dealt with this issue of, of mm -hmm. um, when those, you know, I mean, all the time when there's not good access or there aren't elevators where there should be. I'm thinking of the New York City subway. Um, and But in a hospital, I mean, come on, <laughs> like where lives are in your care. So that's really struck me as I've just, you know, as we were working on the, the series and, and just the outrageousness of that. And, and, and it suddenly struck me. And I think I called you and said, has this been fixed? Like, are, are, is this a requirement? This should be a minimal requirement. It just, it just seems like really stunning. And, and there are, there are sleds, there are different technologies that um, can help move a patient who, who is, you know, medically fragile as well um to to assist them to get downstairs but in this case apparently they didn't have those resources or didn't know they have them sometimes that's the issue if you don't require regular exercises people f forget sometimes the resources that do exist and um so there was a discussion about mr everett who was um and of course, there's a whole level of bias we can talk about with cognitive disabilities. And so a lot of the patients on this floor may not have, you know, some of them had dementia and um, some of them, because of the nature of their illnesses, were, were kept in a, a sort of an unconscious state. So they couldn't, they weren't speaking or interacting. And Mr. Everett was an exception to that. And he was awake and alert um, and, you know, very because he had he had been at this facility for a while the the, the long-term nature of the care there there were strong relationships between 
um, him and and the staff who, who very much liked him. And um, he expressed the desire to be rescued, which I think is important. He, he wanted to be helped. He, you know, said, don't let them leave me behind because his three roommates were removed out and he was still there. And the big issue in the discussion and the people I interviewed as I spent years researching this book, which was a, a work of journalism, you know, they said we couldn't figure out how we'd get him down the stairs and up to the helipad. And according to the witnesses to this discussion and participants in this discussion, a decision was made to um, to give him some drugs that were found in his body after his death. He he was one of a number of patients, um, close to two dozen patients, who were later found to have died with uh, a morphine, Versed, which is a fast-acting sedative, one or the other, or both of those drugs in their bodies. And, and his body in particular had both of those drugs that were what were considered extremely high levels. And they were not uh, drugs that he was, that had been prescribed for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and his case, um, you know, really stood out because, you know, all of his, all the people for, who were responsible for providing his care felt he was, you know, had, um, met, from a medical standpoint, if he was moved, would have, there was, he was not in danger of dying. They wouldn't, he wasn't on the brink of death for, you know, where he was helped out of his last moments of life by those drugs. Like he, he was thought by his providers to be in a position to be rescued. And so, um, his story is told in, in more depth in, in the series and in the book. And, and he was, um, as I said earlier, you know, I, I, I know so many people just like him, um, who, and, you know, they're, um, for, for people who think of somebody like him as, uh, you know, uh, his situation was some, somehow different or, you know, that could never happen to me. Um, that could have been any of us. And our systems are still so broken. Uh, you know, I, in disaster response in uh, uh, Hurricane Ian, um, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're learning more about an incredible woman who uh, had been placed in a long-term care facility and things started to fall apart at the beginning of the hurricane. And so she got her role later and she walked out of the nursing home. She's like, I'm not staying. I'm going out into the storm. And, and they called the police on her. And she, she said, no, I'm, I'm not staying. I'm leaving. And um, she, she ended up in a uh, shelter and very fortunately connected with some folks who, um, you know, uh, folks that, that we work with who uh, wanted uh, very much to help her to um, not go back to the nursing home. Um, and so, you know, she, uh, she, she is going to be 
someone who um, you know has a a much better outcome than she might otherwise have had. Um, you know, and 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 you asked Sherry, um, you know, certainly things are changing. Certainly there are great examples, and and so I want to call out two particular very recent uh, examples of great progress. And, and those are, um, uh, both happen to be hurricanes, but um, uh, Hurricane uh, Fiona and Hurricane Ian, where in Puerto Rico, folks that we've been working with for years who are disability community leaders, um, you know, they have built um, an, an island-wide um, initiative of, of um, core uh, uh, leaders who work together before, during, and after disasters to plan for, uh, you know, people with disabilities themselves uh, at the forefront. Um, and then in Florida, uh, folks who've also had lots of practice, unfortunately, uh, they as well uh, have a statewide uh, initiative and disability community leaders have been, you know, uh, very actively uh, assisting and advocating uh, for disaster impacted people with disabilities. And of course, you know, as we know, um, you know, the people who are most disproportionately impacted are uh, people of color, uh, black and and brown people who indigenous. Um, you know, uh, uh, people who are LGBTQ, uh, people who, um, you know, have other intersecting identities that are very often marginalized. Um, and, you know, certainly commonly people who experience poverty and people who are houseless. Um, and the really, the, the good news is these community leaders are stepping up and stepping in. We also um, have, have uh, through our Global Alliance for Disaster Resource Acceleration, um, we've been doing uh, a, a lot of work in support of a, a disability-led, uh, women-led organization called Fight for Right in Ukraine. And, you know, so that's a very different kind of a crisis, um, but the issues, the needs, you know, uh, access to accessible information, evacuation, sheltering, sheltering in place, uh, extreme weather, you know, all of those pieces are um, uh, so similar in the, you know, Russia's war uh, against Ukraine. And Again, another great example is the leadership of these disabled women um, who are really making a very big effort with a lot of support from folks around the world who want these disability-led organizations um, to have the resources they need to support their community. So that's, I think this is so important know, because it shows that um, the failures are not inevitable and that there are 
there are successes mm -hmm. and there is another way and it is doable. And so it, it is very important to highlight the examples that you just gave because, uh, you know, then we don't get mired in this. Well, nothing, you know, it can't change. And, and that was really true in Katrina too. There were hospitals that didn't have this happen. And I think that's really important when you, because you can kind of focus in on this one story and wonder, you know, well, was it inevitable? Was there another, you know, could it have turned out differently if different choices were made? And, and actually we do have the counterfactual. We have places, um, for example, the, the county, you know, the public hospital where they were always, you know, similar to, like you said, the resilience of people who are always having to adapt and, and find another way. And, and so this hospital was always, you know, not enough resources and staff and they had to, to, to adapt and, and improvise. And they actually had much better outcomes. They had twice as many people. They were trapped for longer and they had fewer deaths. So, sure. and, and, you know, no evidence that such, um, you know, desperation was reached of, of deciding to potentially hasten patients' deaths. So, um, so those counterfactuals are really important. And um, the other thing I wanted to say, re reflecting on um, the examples that you just gave, is just another, um, where, where you talked about the, the people who are uh, disproportionately impacted and, and kind of also deal with um, it, um, those types of maybe biases or marginalization or devaluation on a day-to-day -day basis have to struggle and how that can be magnified in a, in a disaster. And one thing that was really interesting in COVID was um, this, this issue of uh, prioritization, which, you know, five days at Memorial, you see that, that really stark dilemma about which patients get rescued. But in COVID, there were also that, you know, early on that fear around not enough ventilators for a respiratory disease where a lot of people will have a period of not being able to breathe on their own and need the support of a machine. And there was a fear that there wouldn't be enough ventilators, there wouldn't be enough staff to run ICUs. And, and, um, and, and this happened. There, there were. Oh, um, yeah. But, but one of the interesting things that occurred that turned out to be a very bipartisan issue, which is rare in these days, was this idea that um, there had, and I know you know this very well, that, but um, listeners might be interested, just there were some written um, you know, guidelines on how you would make those decisions, if you being you know, a hospital or a hospital staff, uh, who to prioritize if those resources were not uh, felt mm -hmm. to be adequate for everybody who needed them. And there were some baked right. in biases that would have mm -hmm. amplified the um, potential disparities and, and, or I should say pre-existing disparities. We already know there are disparate health outcomes for mm -hmm. some of those groups that you mentioned within healthcare mm -hmm. on a baseline. And so there were some, you know, very well-meaning, um, you know, provisions in these um, in these guidelines that would have like further disadvantaged and magnified um, mm -hmm. people who needed these resources. And what was amazing, and this really shows the importance of inclusive planning, is that because small groups of people, mostly, you know, the 
groups who you would imagine might populate, um, you know, people who've been able to access medical school and go through that and and be professionals and and so so these well-meaning groups of doctors and hospital administrators who had come together to an ethicists I should say to to make these yeah. plans um, because there were so few uh, examples where they had gone out to communities and made sure that all the stakeholders i.e. all of us any of us who could need medical resources in a disaster um, that the different groups uh, had not been part of that discussion. It was just, you know, in closed small rooms and, and um, you know, not published in, in a lot of cases. Once that became, that more and more people became aware of this and, you know, disability gr rights groups were among the, the groups that kind of um, brought complaints to the Office of Civil Rights in the health department under both Trump and Biden and action was taken and those plans were changed to comply with civil rights um, laws mm -hmm. in this country. So I just think that's a great example of where um, it just highlights the importance of having eyes on these things and having people in the room who who represent um, viewpoints or, or just, you know, like I, I think it wouldn't have occurred to some of the planners about how these things intersect. And, you know, we uh, we had to do a lot of work as disability rights leaders. Um, we were outraged. Uh, you know, I, I have a friend who um, uh, uses BiPAP um, on a daily basis, um, lives in the community, very successful, you know, and uh, they were told um, that they could not wear their BiPAP into the emergency room and um, they would not be eligible for a ventilator. Um, and uh, so they should just not come to the emergency room. I wow. <laughs> And but yeah. that yes that that was in uh, that was in some of these plans, absolutely. Yes. yes. Or and... people who relied on ventilators mm -hmm. at home if they got you know sick and this was you know for many years even before COVID but if they would get sick in a pandemic, um, mm -hmm. that their ventilator could be retriaged to somebody else, yeah. uh, based on these guidelines. Yeah, amazing. Correct. It sounds amazing to say it, but th this is a very common. Provision yeah. in in these um, yeah. these types of guidelines. Yeah, exactly. And you know, at the same time, um, you know, there uh, because uh, this was a public health emergency, and um, because there are some you know specific uh, waivers, flexibilities, um, there were some really unfortunate and I would argue illegal uh, efforts to, you know, move people out of acute care hospital beds, people with COVID, for instance, and move them into long-term care facilities um, while they had COVID in order to make space for other folks who were sicker. And then those folks brought COVID into long-term care facilities, or it, you know, more recently, and of course, you know, COVID is nowhere near over, 
Um, but more recently, people uh, have been, uh, you know, people who don't have COVID have been moved into facilities where lots of people are sick. Mm-hmm. And so that's made them sick. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's uh, so much that um, we all need to find opportunities to learn from. You know, people talk a lot about lessons learned and we sort of joke, you know, lessons observed, Mm -hmm. uh, necessarily learned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also, there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, building back better. And, um, you know, we, we think we should actually be building forward better. Um, Building back has not served us very well. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think I think we, if we take the good and promising practices, and you know we all um, take the opportunity to imagine and then um, do the work to have you know a, a, to prioritize better outcomes. Um, you know, I think this is a real turning point for us as a nation. Globally, the work that we're doing in other countries, you know, many countries, as you said earlier, are doing far better than we are here in the U.S., which is incredibly disturbing to people and uncomfortable. And um, so uh, (laughs) much more work to be done. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think uh, this conversation has been such a gift. Um, you know, the World Institute on Disability, uh, we have a, um, you know, What's Up With podcast, and we bring a lot of really great folks uh, to, the, to the mic. Um, and um, having you uh, be a part of our podcasts, it means so much to me, Sherry. And, and your your work, your continued work. I can't wait to hear and see what you do on COVID. Um, I welcome every opportunity to uh, chew through some of the thorny issues if you want to talk about them. Um, and uh, just so appreciative of your leadership and um, your your willingness to sort of uh, take a take a dive into some of these issues from a disability perspective. Well, thank you, Marcy. And I I would say just, you know, please keep, keep telling the stories. And, and if there are, well, in particular with COVID now with the, with the, with the book, if you or the listeners have examples that um, are important to get out, um, I I would love to hear from you. So keep me in your Rolodex. Okay. <laughs> That's a promise. <laughs> yeah, and thank you. It was it was a really um I learned a lot from our conversation as I always do I, when we speak. Yes, so. Me too. Me too. Any any last thoughts or any anything you want to sort of put out there? Um I just 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 to thank you and thank thanks to 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 your community for continuing to, um, you know, to you, to your colleagues, to people in the disability rights community for 
uh, I, I guess, you know, educating and, and raising awareness among um, all of us, including journalists who, who might not have known um, some of the things that you bring to light. So, so yeah, thank you for that. And, um, and like you said, we can end on that positive note of knowing that there's more work to do and it can be done and, and that change can happen. And even if it impacts, uh, you know, one community at a time, it, it's still really, really valid or one individual at a time, like the person you just talked about. Yeah. And, uh, in closing, I would like to say, let's, let's dedicate this discussion to Emmett and to uh, someone who was very pivotal for me, Vanilda Cachetta, uh, who also yes. uh, survived Katrina. So how about if we dedicate this discussion to them? And that's beautiful. <laughs>